This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Rita Kogensen, who is the author of Liberal States, Authoritarian Families, Childhood and Education in Early Modern Thought. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Um, and this is a really interesting exploration of the idea of education and how it works within liberalism. But I'm going to let Rita tell us all about that. Um, I'd like to welcome Rita to the New Books Network and ask us to ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Rita. Hi. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Um, so I uh, teach at the University of Virginia teach political theory and American politics. Um, And this book grew out of my dissertation, which in turn grew out of my dissatisfaction with my high school education, um, I guess middle school and high school. Um, And, you know, I had long really been interested in education. And one of the things that I observed when I was going through high school was that um, my teachers didn't seem to want to take authority or to take the authority that they had or to claim the authority that they had, that they would often sort of pretend to be your friend or your equal, say, call me by my first name, or sort of behave as though they were on a level uh, with us as students. And um, when it, it was very hard to take them seriously under those conditions. Uh, and it really changed so much when I got to college. I went to the University of Chicago and like I encountered for the first time these people who seemed to know so much that I no longer really wanted to undermine their authority in the same way that high school had really sort of given me this proclivity to um, be insubordinate, as my disciplinary record states, um, <laughs> because it was just it didn't seem that these people were authoritative. Um, whereas by the time I got to the university, these people really did seem authoritative, the professors that I had. And I had really no desire to like play pranks on them and, and do this sort of childish stuff because they seemed to really know something that I wanted to know. And I admired them as individuals and I wanted to be like them. Um, And so I was very puzzled by this experience because it seems to me that the school claims to have authority over children, the sort of primary and secondary school, but the teachers in it or the adults in it generally don't really exercise it in the same way that you would expect from an institution that claims to have this authority. And as I was working on my PhD and I was looking at early modern education, I mean, one of the things that struck me was that in contrast to a lot of contemporary democratic theory about the family and education, which tried to emphasize how, you know, child rearing and education should be democratic uh, as much as possible, like the democratic regime that we're in. Uh, You know, Locke and Rousseau, who were liberal in a lot of respects, were extremely illiberal in their account of education. Um, I mean, that's really sort of most obvious in Locke because he has on the one hand the second treatise of government in which he says all government is by consent and everybody is born equal um, and everybody has these natural rights. And then his um, thoughts concerning education, which begins with this you know, pronouncement that you should have absolute authority over your children. Uh, and the contrast there is very stark. So I became interested in sort of why it is the case that in the 17th and 18th centuries, you have these liberal, proto-liberal accounts of education that 
you know, on the one hand, positive authority in the home or in the family or in education and liberty in the public sphere. And then you have contemporary sort of Rawlsian and Rawlsian derived liberal accounts of education in the 1990s and, and 2000s that seem to um, argue for congruence, what I call congruence in the book between the regime and the family or education so that they should be modeled on the same principles. If the regime is anti-authoritarian, the home and the family and education should be anti-authoritarian as well. And, and this is one of the major points in your analysis is this idea of the congruence theory, at least as a, a kind of question in looking at early modern thinkers. Can you explain just a little bit more about this congruence theory um, in terms of how authority works in the home, the school, and the society or the government? Yeah. So, I mean, Congruence is sort of this premise, um, and it was my experience in high school. I think the experience of a lot of people who've grown up in the you know late twentieth and early twenty first century that the idea, the reason your teacher wants to be like your friend is because we're all equals politically. So the kind of relationship we have as political citizens should be mirrored, should be congruent with the relationship we have in all the other spheres of the society. So in you know in in the public sphere in politics as citizens, we're equals with in, endowed with natural rights. Um, you know, these rights are granted to us as individuals. And so that should follow as well in the home, in the school, in the church, in our friendships. Um, and so that all of the sort of, um, you know, what, what Tocqueville calls intermediary institutions in a society should be structured to mirror the structure of the state. Um, and that's sort of been the, the, broad premise of most of 20th century liberalism, that we want to get there as much as possible. Um, and so we see this, you know, Elizabeth Anderson's work on the workplace. Um, you see this, there are other political theorists working on friendship even, you know, so we need to model friendship on democracy, but the problem is friendship is exclusive or sometimes is exclusive. Well, is that a problem of justice then? You know, is the church's hierarchical but our society is not hierarchical, or our state is not hierarchical, should we then reform the church so that it can fall more in line with the structure of the state? Uh, and so the family and the school are a very interesting problem from the perspective of congruence, because children are not really capable of being equals in the same way that, you know, two adult friends could be, right? Or members of a church who are also adults would, you know, potentially be. So they raise this really sort of liminal problem of authority, which is that if we really want to get rid of authority in all the spheres of society, what do we do about children? How do we govern them? Because they're not rational. Uh, and so there was sort of in the 1970s, this whole effort to liberate children, the sort of child liberation movement. John Holt was a, a major figure in this um, to argue that actually children are kind of an oppressed minority, that it's artificial this idea that they're not really reasonable, we've sort of imposed this on them in order to dominate them, and that the solution to this problem is to essentially elevate children to the status of equal citizens and stop imposing these sorts of civic handicaps on them that we, we do now, like that they can't vote um, and that you know they don't have representatives and things like that. So that has to be abolished. That's a very radical position, obviously never got very popular. People have some personal experiences with children, have a hard time imagining uh, a world in which children can vote. Um, and so the Rawlsian position is more moderate. You know, so they, they acknowledge that children are not born reasonable, as Locke says, and that it, there's a period of education that we have to take uh, to get there. 
but um, they want to make that education as much structured like the state as possible. So the family should allow children, you know, for example, to have a say in family decisions, to be involved in discussions and negotiations. And the school likewise should treat children as kind of proto-citizens and as, as um, Mira Levinson puts it in, in her book, you know, the school should be a kind of place to practice, to rehearse democratic and liberal norms of equality and freedom uh, without the consequences that would come from going astray as an adult you know, which is that you commit a crime and you're, you know, imprisoned. Uh, so the school will not punish you in the same way. So it's a way to practice without the same kind of accountability. Uh, and that's sort of modern liberal congruence. Uh, and so what I looked at is sort of the source of this idea. And one of the places that I found it is in early modern thought in absolutism. And that's a different kind of congruence. <laughs> and, and so, um, you start the book, you, your sort of your launching pad in the introduction is Hannah Arendt um, sort of comments with regard to um, this, this sort of in or congruence theory problem. Um, but then you go back further into um, early, early modern. Um, and you do talk about this sort of um, authoritarianism, um, or as you say, absolutism. Can you explain who you're looking at and how that sort of basis was also the launching point for the research? Yeah. So, I mean, I was looking at the history of how we think of modeling the family on the state or why we would think to model the family on the state in the way that congruence theory sort of pushes us to do. Um, and so if, you know, when I was looking sort of in the 15th and early 16th century, there's a lot of mixed regime theorists who say, well, the family is kind of the basis of the state, but, you know, the, the duties of the monarch have nothing to do with the duties of a father, or they're unlike the duties of a father, um, even if the family can precede the state, etc. Um, and it's not really until Jean Baudin uh, in the 16th century, who's the first theorist of sovereignty, modern sovereignty, where you get the argument that uh, the state, you know, the the sovereign for him is a monarch has absolute power. That's the nature of sovereignty. Somebody has to have the final say in the regime. That's going to be the monarch. And the way that we can help citizens in this case, subjects understand that is by having them grow up in sort of absolutist families. So we're going to give back to the father of families, these Roman rights of life and death, which had been abolished by Christianity. So the ideally what we want is to have a kind of patriarchal family in which the father is the absolute sovereign of his family. So that growing up in this family, you will have the experience of being a subject of an absolute monarch in the state. Uh, and so he's the first person to try to, at least in theory, reorganize the family so that it resembles an absolutist state. And then that's picked up by Robert Filmer, um, who just sort of cribs a lot of, of Baudin, you know, wholesale. Uh, and then in Patriarcha sort of tries to develop a theory of patriarchal government with a sort of basis in Adam. Um, and we see a similar version, although Hobbes is using it for different reasons, in Hobbes. This idea that the, the family is really a creation of the sovereign. It doesn't really even exist before him. Once the sovereign is in place, the family should be designed in such a way that the powers of the father are a mirror image of the powers of the sovereign. And then that way it will be like a little school 
of what it's like to be a subject of a sovereign. And so it's really the absolutists who come up with this idea that we need to reform the family to model it on the structure of the state in order for it to be an educative device for the children growing up in it so that they can become suitable subjects for an absolutist monarchy. But, but Hobbes, you also talk about as you go through then Locke and Rousseau, Hobbes is a sort of deviation from um, what Locke and Rousseau are then sort of talking about and trying to work out. Um, and, and I found that to be particularly interesting given the emphasis with regard to the power of the sovereign in the state in Hobbes. Can you explain um, how Hobbes' idea of the family and the state is distinct from the the later theorists who are also then kind of refuting him a bit? Yeah, so Hobbes says two things that are different from Bodin and Filmer and this sort of broader patriarchal absolutist tradition. One is he says the family is not natural at all. And he severs the link between the between nature and the family. So the family is just like any other institution created by the sovereign at the sovereign and exists at the sovereign's pleasure. Uh, and that takes away the basis for rebellion, because the problem with Bodin had been that if you have an absolute father and you have an absolute monarch, they kind of conflict. They both have the right, the power of life and death over you. And so that creates actually a kind of contradiction in who is sovereign. And it's especially problematic because Bodin says the family is the natural organization. So if that has a claim to nature, it's actually in some ways superior to the sovereign who's a merely artificial creation that we put up in, in a state. Uh, and so what Hobbes wants to do is get rid of the possibility that our loyalty to the family will suborn our loyalty to the state will trump it. Uh, and so there's no natural family. The family is a contra- is a contractual creation. The infant gives consent, he says, to be ruled by the mother and then the father. Uh, and so even though that's a little bit implausible, I mean, that's what he insists in, in Leviathan and, and in Dehive. Uh, and so as a result, it's a merely artificial association, just like the state, and therefore has no precedence over the state. And if the sovereign wants to abolish the family, he can abolish the family, but it would not be prudent for him to do that. Um, So that's one important move that he makes, which is to try to disestablish the naturalness of the family. And the reason that he's trying to do that is because he's afraid of rebellion and resistance. And the source of resistance, as he understands it, and that actually subsequent liberals will take up is public opinion that no matter what kind of power the absolute sovereign asserts he has, if the people don't accept it, if they believe in other demagogues who are wandering around, right, or they have other allegiances, they won't, they, they, he effectively will not be sovereign anymore. We will have civil war. If there's a, if people believe that there is a cause to have, to resist, they will resist. And so the important thing for Hobbes is to take away all of the possibilities of believing that the sovereign is illegitimate, right? And that includes something like, I have this natural loyalty to this natural body called the family. So he's very sensitive to public opinion, and he sees that public opinion is actually in some ways more powerful than any asserted power by the state. And that becomes really crucial for Locke and Rousseau, who in this respect agree with him, that public opinion, what they call fashion um, and taste and custom, Uh, is in fact in charge. 
And so the whole challenge for them then becomes, how do you get out of this absolutism without falling prey to public opinion, without just subjecting everybody to this kind of centrifugal power of public opinion? How do you preserve some kind of independence of mind and individual, real individual liberty under conditions where public opinion is more and more, uh, as I think Rousseau puts it, the queen of the world? And I know my my students were pushing, interestingly, against some of Rousseau's ideas with regard to fashion and public opinion um, my, this past fall in my political theory class. Um, so I, I was having a good time with them. Um, I, I wanted to ask you this question with regard to the naturalness or artificiality of the family, because this is also where Hobbes sort of disagrees with Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so is how is that particular severing um, important also with regard to the conceptualization of the role of the family in the society or in the govern, governing structure? Uh, well, so for Hobbes, it's important because if you want the sovereign to be truly absolute, everything else has to be subject to him. So to say that there's something that precedes him would be problematic. Um, so he calls, I think this is um, in Dekive, he calls it all these intermediary institutions, including the family, worms in the entrails of a natural man, right? They are plagues. They are sources of different opinion and therefore sources of resistance. And all of them have to come under the control of the sovereign if he hopes to maintain stability in the polity, um, in the Commonwealth. So in that sense, anything that can have a claim to naturalness, once we accept that the sovereign is artificial, which Hobbes is, is pretty adamant, the sovereign is an artificial creation. Anything that has a, a pre-existing claim to naturalness is problematic for him because it can potentially rival the sovereign in primacy. And so for him, undoing the naturalness of the family is really essential. But since he still wants to have, he wants to use the family as a kind of educational mechanism in the same way that Baudin and Filmer did, where you learn how to be a subject by being the subject of an absolute father, he doesn't want to, you know, encourage the sovereign to overthrow the family. Plus, that would obviously create all kinds of political instability. Uh, so, you know, he's he's pretty subtle about the way that he says that the family is not really natural, but he does it. He still does it. And that gives the sovereign license to then be sort of power, you know, he's the power of the family and the family exists at his discretion legally. Um, and so the bulk of, of your work in the book is focusing on Locke and particularly Rousseau um, in their discussion of not only the family, but particularly the role of education um, and how this sort of understanding and possibly reconceptualization of education is very important with regard to the structure of sort of modern liberalism. Can you explain how they're also in in sort of conflict with Hobbes um, and how they are, are both sort of taking the education project in different ways? Yeah, so I think in the sense that they're both in conflict with the absolutists, right, their argument is against absolute sort of absolute monarchy as a just regime or a legitimate regime. Um, so Locke is against all absolutism, um, and he's he's sort of an anti-sovereignty theorist in certain respects. And Rousseau does accept sovereignty theory, but thinks that the people have to be sovereign. That's the only legitimate form of sovereignty. So both of them are opposed to this whole Baudin, Filmer, Hobbes tradition of 
absolute monarchical sovereignty. So their challenge becomes, how do you create a regime or a constitution in which the people rule to some degree in, in you know, for Locke, they rule through the legislature. Um, and in Rousseau, he has a lot of different ideas, depending on what your personal preference is for a state. Um, but, you know, he, he does, he's very clear in all of them that, that absolute sovereignty of, the, of a single person is illegitimate. How do you create a state in which people rule through some mechanism or another, but which is not dominated by public opinion, or at the very least in which individuals can seek freedom from public opinion, which they both understand to be wrong. I mean, public opinion is misleading and false and a kind of tyrant of its own. Um, And so they focus on the will and how the will and the desires can be sort of trained by education to resist the temptations of public opinion. And so for them, education becomes really central to retaining individual sort of intellectual liberty in in a liberal democratic regime. And for that to work, though, you need authority. And that authority has to come from adults. And so this is their challenge, which is how do you maintain a kind of politics that is premised on individual liberty and equality that is not congruent, because congruence is really logical, that is totally incongruent with a an education that is highly authoritative. And I mean, I, I use the word authoritarian in my book. My husband told me to get rid of that because then people will just think I'm arguing for like dictatorship. Um, but I mean, I'm using it in the way that Arendt is using it, that authority has gotten this bad name because of, of liberalism's distaste for it, but that it's not in its nature a problem that it, it used correctly, it's actually a support for liberalism. So for Locke and Rousseau, education becomes the, the sort of channel through which you could potentially preserve individual liberty, but it requires the application, in sometimes even the extreme application of adult authority. And, and so this question of how to do that, right? That's also what you're talking about in, in your book is how do we, in contemporary United States, liberal democracy, how do we sort of put these pieces together? Um, And I was just reading the conclusion before we came on. um, And you talk about this natural experiment that we've all gone through over the last two years with regard to homeschooling. Um, How is the the sort of um, ideas for education that Locke, but particularly but particularly Rousseau, have um, how are they instituted into our contemporary lives? Well, America is a bad example. I mean, we have to start where they started, which is in a kind of aristocratic liberalism, right? Um, so a, a kind of you know uh, commercial states that are that still retain real aristocracies in them. So, and their answer is, you know, you can't send children to school because school is the place where they will be infected by the virus of public opinion. Uh, And so what you have to do is you have to teach them at home under the consistent authority of one or two or, you know, a few adults. So the parents and the tutor or just the parents or something like that. Um, And that authority has to be consistent because that's how you train the will. Uh, So, to use Locke as an example, he gives this whole guide to education and so much of what goes on. I mean, he's very focused on early education and all of these details of sleeping and eating and, you know, being cold and hot, um, you know, bowel movements. He has a whole chapter on that. Uh, and 
you know, the argument he's making there is that the, the child has all these natural desires. And if he's ever to be able to control himself, he has to be able to cross those desires. And what the, the sort of the organ that does that is the will. But he can't do that as a child. So the adults have to do that for him. They have to will for him. Uh, and so there he has this whole argument about how, how what are you supposed to do with the child like wants to eat sweet things? You can't give him sweet things if he wants to, you know, he wants to be comfortable and warm. So you send him outside in his wet socks or whatever, and he's uncomfortable and cold. And all of this is a kind of training to teach him that he can actually silence his desires that the things he wants, he doesn't have to have, and he'll survive without them. That strengthens his will. And so, and in order to do that, you have to impose your authority because the child naturally will not do any of these things. Um, and so the, the whole section on bowel movements is wonderful. It trains you to, to go regularly because that's exactly the thing that the child doesn't want to do. The child wants to like not use the toilet and just play because he's excited and distracted. And so you have to cross his, his desires there. And if the child wants to stay up late, you cross their desires and send them to bed. Uh, and so you do this as, as a sort of mechanism to build up their will so that when they're adults and they're faced with all of this sort of the competing fashions and all of these people beckoning to them and, and competing for their esteem, they can say no, that they have this kind of internal strength of will that's been developed by education for them to be able to say no to fashion and to say no to public opinion. And the fear is that if they don't have that, what they will always crave is other people's esteem and they will do anything that it takes to get it. And then they won't really have the independence of mind that in a way liberalism is aiming at for at least for some people, if not for everybody. Um, and Rousseau is a little bit more I mean, Rousseau, Emile is a much more complicated book. And it turns out in Emile, I think that it's the education of Sophie that is really the model for this kind of education, that what Emile's education does is show us philosophically uh, where Locke falls short, where Locke is contradictory. Um, and the obvious example of that, I think, is the problem of authority, that for Locke, you impose your authority on, a, on an infant. But Locke says everybody has to consent to government. And so isn't that a contradiction? And that's what Rousseau picks up. And so Rousseau tries to design an education for the boy, for Emile, that is fully consistent with Locke's philosophy. So Emile never is, there's no authority over Emile until he consents to it in adolescence. But in order for that to happen, you have to control every single aspect of the child's surrounding. So he never feels that you're manipulating everything, but ultimately you are manipulating everything. And it's impossible. And so there are several sort of examples in which he's clearly trying to show that Locke's education is practically self-contradictory, or rather it's philosophically self-contradictory. And so the philosophical correction would require this, you know, bizarre, elaborate education that Emil has that's also not possible. And then he gets to Sophie. And Sophie, it turns out, much neglected, poor Sophie. Nobody likes that book. Um, <laughs> turns out Sophie has a Lockean education. If you look at what's going on, you know, she has early sort of submission to her or subordination to her parents. They're her authorities. She's, you know, follows her mother. Uh, she gets the same kind of religious education that Locke describes and some thoughts concerning education. She's subjected to fashion. She's shown how she's supposed to resist fashion and at various times overcome it and, you know, turn it, turn against it. And so she gets the Lockean education and it's practical. I mean, that's the whole thing problem with Emile is like, Emile's this wonderful story of this natural education, all of these pedagogues ever since Rousseau have been so captivated by it, but you can't do it. And you can see the problem, which is that all these pedagogues who've been captivated by it, like the first thing they do is start schools. 
that are going to do Rousseauian pedagogy, even though the first thing Rousseau says is, you know, do not send your children to a school. A school could never do this. You need one tutor for one child, and that tutor can never be a tutor to any other child after that. He has to devote his life to this child. Um, but, you know, all of these people, Bassadao, Pestalozzi, and then in the United States, Dewey, uh, their response to that is, well, you know, we can modify this into a school curriculum. So that's, I think that's clearly an error. And that is a sign or a suggestion that Emil is not supposed to be, Emil is a philosophical experiment or a philosophical exposition of what it would take to have a natural education. Sophie is really what you could do. And Sophie is just Locke. It's just Lockean education. And so it's that kind of education that builds up the will against, teaches the will to fight the desires that is supposed to for Locke and Rousseau, I think, prepare you for liberal citizenship and for the, the really strong temptations of liberal citizenship to give over your intellectual independence to fashion and to public opinion. And so the the education that we see sort of moving through early modern to later modern um, political theory is one where intellectual independence is what is necessary for the citizen um, to to push against the fashion or taste or will. Um, And it's very difficult to develop this intellectual independence without starting from some sort of place of authority. Right. And it's it's also a fairly isolated place of authority, which is another problem for Americans. Right. So like what is Locke really describing? He's describing, you know, some gentry out on their country estates in England, you know, shielding their children from basically all outside influence. And, you know, not in the city, not anywhere crowded, not anywhere where they would come into contact really with any authority figures other than their parents. Uh, And the servants are a problem. So Locke spends some time talking about how you've got to make sure that the servants are not manipulating your children. But that's really the only adult influences that the child has on this nice country estate. And it's the same thing in Emil. I mean, Emil is also supposed to be the son of some, you know, gentry, lower gentry type person who's got a country estate where they're shielded from and isolated from the rest of society and especially Paris, which is the sort of center of corruption in the world. Uh, So what do Americans make of that, right? We just don't have such a, we don't have an aristocracy at any point that's like that, that has, you know, where we can imagine mass education on country estates with individual tutors. And so America really poses an interesting dilemma that, I mean, in a way, my book doesn't go that far. My book just ends with Rousseau um, and this idea that the argument is for an isolated sort of parent-guided homeschooling uh, for all or just for the aristocracy that can do it. I mean, it's, you know, Locke has a different education for the, the working class, and it looks nothing like what he proposes in some thoughts concerning education. But, you know, the American dilemma is how do we adapt the insights? I mean, the, the danger is still there in America, the danger of public opinion, the danger of fashion and the way that these corrupt intellectual independence. But the conditions are totally different because we're, dem- we're a democracy and everybody has to work for a living and we can't homeschool our kids at least not on a large scale. And so I think that that does raise a really interesting question about how do you adapt the the insights, especially the fears that Locke and Rousseau had, which are still salient, to a different approach to education that can still address those fears, um, but is, you know, doable, practicable under democratic conditions. So I, I have scribbled in my notes as I was reading along, is the fundamental problem peer pressure? 
Yeah, that's what, it, you know, This that's David Reisman, right? That's where what Arendt is drawing on, too, in The Lonely Crowd, right? Is this discovery, it's kind of part of a rediscovery of Tocqueville in the 1950s, that, you know, the democracy and the majority is tyrannical. And that it's not such a simple thing as, like, we just empower the majority and now we're all free. Because under conditions of industrialization, in fact, the majority becomes mass society, as they call it. And, you know, there's education, but the education is also mass education that doesn't have the effect of freeing individuals and doesn't even have the purpose of freeing individuals to think for themselves. Right now we talk about sort of getting people ready for the workforce, uh, which is not exactly the same thing as intellectual independence. And so, yeah, there's a kind of rediscovery of this problem in the 1950s when we first see mass education come onto the scene that, you know, sociologists like David Reisman or, you know, theorists like Arendt see that this education is not sort of preserving the promise of liberalism, which was intellectual independence. And then the great question becomes, well, how do we how do we get that back? And homeschooling is actually a movement that starts in the 1960s um, and is a kind of weird, you know, sort of a strange bedfellows response to, on the one hand, the far left, which sees this kind of industrial mass education as, you know, soul stifling. And on the other hand, the sort of the far right and religious conservatives who are also opposed to what they see as indoctrination in the schools. And they sort of form an alliance and, and you know, state by state legalize homeschooling through the 1970s. And you could say homeschooling is in our modern, on our modern educational terrain, sort of the closest thing to what Locke and Rousseau are describing uh, that, you know, we, we can practice. But, you know, until 2020, nobody would have thought that the whole country could homeschool. Uh, and, you know, still it seems that although numbers of homeschoolers have gone way up since the pandemic, like permanent homeschoolers, um, it still seems unlikely to become the majority educational mode. Uh, so it does raise a really interesting question of what what school can do or how we should conceive of education in such a way that it can protect this kind of intellectual liberty um, and not fall prey to all of the dangers that Locke and Rousseau laid out. And and in, even in the sort of homeschool movement in the United States, which is, again, an imperfect experiment, um, that there is still the the connection oftentimes to the community, to playing sports with the established schools, so that the homeschooled students are not as isolated as sort of proposed by um, Locke and Rousseau. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. How, so if you consider siblings, right, Locke and Rousseau both assume that there are going to be siblings in the family. So there will be other children, but it's always in a manageable quantity. I mean, the way that Locke describes it in Some Thoughts Concerning Education, the problem of school, he has a whole discussion sort of weighing the pros and cons of sending your child to one of these boarding schools. And, you know, he says, like, there are some good things about going to these boarding schools. You'll learn really good Greek and Latin. That's what they're good at. But the problem with them is that you're going to pick up the terrible habits of the other boarding boys there, uh, the vicious habits of the other boys, and that there aren't going to be enough adults to really be authoritative in that context. That what happens is because the children so so intensively outnumber the adults, they become the authority. And that, you know, he says a, a headmaster, no matter how good and conscientious he is, can never have the same kind of authority over, you know, dozens of school children as he could have over just a couple. So I think that the idea is not that you should be in total isolation, but that you should always be in a context in which the adult authority, the sort of consistent adult authority is authoritative and that it's not outnumbered. Um, and so, you know, he's not trying to raise a, a nation of like isolated weirdos because then you have to enter society and be sort of sociable and able to function in it, um, especially these sort of gentry, you know, these are the people who are going to stand for parliament and things like that. Um, but that, 
you should always your education should be a sort of environment which in which authority always prevails. Uh, so I think homeschooling does get close to that. I mean, you know, youth sports and all that, that it's like a couple hours that you spend with other kids and there are adults there. And, you know, these are, it's not, it's a sort of controlled group situation. It's not the same thing as a school in which there's really a vast disproportion between children and adults. But I think that even the school we have to take as, you know, we have to think about what the school does and how it can in certain ways how in certain ways it still does resemble the authority of parents. And it seems to me that one of the real dangers is like exactly the experience that I had in high school, which is that the adults don't want to claim their authority. And this is also something that Arendt describes that you, that it's not just that children in their sort of viciousness, like want to dominate adults, but it's that actually in the post-war period, adults have stepped back and they've sort of, you know, in the way that Arendt puts it, failed to take responsibility for the world or refused to take responsibility for the world and have sort of decided that they've made such a mess of things. You know, if we look at the political world, we've obviously messed it up so poorly, so badly that there's no way that we really could teach children anything about it, right? That what we should really be doing is kind of preserving their innocence, their purity, so that then when they're adults, they can, in their innocence and purity, do things right without any bad advice from us. And so that's where you get the sort of experience that is like what I had, where you have teachers who want to be your friends, who actually, in a way, hold adolescents to be the authorities and to hold them to be authorities in fashion, in ideas and in everything else. And we have the sort of cult of youth more broadly in the United States that has that kind of approach. Um, So, I mean, even though school is very imperfect uh, for both of both Locke and Rousseau, there's still a sense in which school could be better if people, if the adults in it understood their roles more clearly. So if the adults in the school need to actually take the authority that is given to them um, to be the authority within a classroom setting. Yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's this great documentary by Frederick Wiseman called High School. It was filmed in 1968, I think. I mean, there's a perfect example of how these people have power, but they don't have authority. Right. They have the power to discipline. They have the power to suspend students, to give them detentions or whatever. But whenever they're asked why, they can't come up with a single reason there. It's just it has to be this way. Um, And, you know, they're sort of desperately trying to to keep these students in, in order, but they're doing it purely through coercion because they have no natural authority. They've sort of given all of that up. And now they just stand there and hector the students about how long their their skirts are or something like that. Um, there's a scene with a girl who wants to go to prom in a short skirt. And the administrators are arguing with her. And she's like, well, why can't I wear it this way? And they're like, well, you know, a prom, like you have to dress formally. It's very uncomfortable. I hate it too, but you have to do it. Right. And it's like the worst reason you could imagine. So I think that kind of loss of authority, right. Where, and, and you see the, the parallel of it in the classroom, which is that the, the teachers have nothing to teach. There's like the English teacher who's like teaching them Simon and Garfunkel lyrics in order to be more in touch with the students. I mean, this is 1968, so I guess you would be in touch with the students that way. Uh, But like not teaching them anything serious. And then you have the serious English teacher who's just reading a book out loud and like everybody's asleep. So, you know, the the kind of authority that comes from greater knowledge is gone. And, you know, that's the, the authority that I encountered at the university. I think that's the place where most people in the United States really encounter that kind of, you know, authority of knowledge where somebody really knows something and it's really impressive. So that's gone in the high school. And at the same time, you know, the sense that we are responsible for the world is gone. And so all you have is hectoring and punishment. Uh, and I think that 
is something that is still possible to change even within the within the constraints of a school where children are always going to outnumber adults. And the issue with regard to the authority of knowledge is something that we encounter every day these days um, with questions about expertise um, and and who should be who should be speaking um, and telling us what to do uh, because they have greater knowledge and we can find all the answers on Google. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think pedagogical expertise is not quite a good description of what it is that teachers know, um, because it's not exactly like what teachers know is a kind of abstruse knowledge that is not broadly, doesn't broadly obtain in society. I mean, you know, a fourth grade teacher knows what most adults know, um, but there is the sense that they know it and that their job is to teach it. Um, And I mean, this in a way goes back again to Arendt, right? And she has this kind of critique of progressive pedagogy in which the whole point of the pedagogy is to facilitate experiences in children so that they learn from their own experiences rather than to convey knowledge to them in a kind of top-down way. And that's, you know, that becomes a problem because then there is no knowledge to convey. And so I think, you know, to call it expertise, I think goes a little bit too far. I mean, you know, your high school teacher is not the CDC, but the the position that your high school teacher takes about, you know, I know biology and you don't, and I'm going to teach it to you versus biology exists in the world and we're going to discover it together through experiments. And I know nothing more than you. I'm just here to like set up the experiment for you to do. Uh, Puts you in a very different sort of authority relationship with the teacher. So now that you've sort of gotten us up to the 20th century, what are you working on now, Rita? (laughs) So now I'm working on exactly this problem of how Americans have dealt with this this dilemma where they have recognized the dangers that Locke and Rousseau describe from public opinion and fashion and the need to protect intellectual liberty, but they also have to send their kids to school because school is a real democratic solution. Um, It's the cheapest and most efficient solution for education in a democracy where parents work. Um, And so I'm looking at sort of the history of hating school. This is the title of my, the working title of the book. Um, So the, the history of, um, how people have approached school in our sort of literature um, and a little bit in our social science and starting with Benjamin Franklin and this problem of we don't have adult authority in the way that Locke and Rousseau prescribe it because our parents are very busy and they have 18 children in the case of Franklin and they don't have time to educate each of these children. It's just a fantasy to think that there's going to be tutors for every child. And so what do we do under those circumstances? And I think Franklin is the first American self-conscious American to try to deal with this problem. And his answer is self-education in his own case. And in the case of the autobiography with your friends, uh, but also he spends his time founding schools and funding schools. And so and so I'm tracing a kind of lineage from Franklin um, through the 19th century writers like Mark Twain, and Huckleberry Finn's very famous depiction of education, um, and Tom Sawyer, Little Women, um, Henry Adams, and then into the 20th century with G. Stanley Hall. Um, this idea that school is necessary, but we don't like it. And it's not the source of our education. It's the kind of foundation where we learn things like reading and writing, without which we would be sort of unable to function in a democratic society um, and in its economy. But at the same time, we understand education as this kind of 
uh, undertaking that we do with our friends against school, almost in opposition to what we've learned in school. And so Huck Finn would be the perfect example of this, right? I mean, Tom Sawyer is a less interesting or sophisticated novel, but it's still the same principle, right? That school is where you go to learn the things you don't want to learn that are, in a sense, the basics. And then your real education is what takes place outside of it. And it's the same thing in Little Women, you know, there it's, well, one of the sisters goes to school in Little Women, one of them just decided that she was too bashful. Um, and But really, you understand their education as taking place in the attic, you know, with each other, writing these plays and, and poems and things like that. Um, and you see the same thing in a way with Franklin, who's trying to balance this, right? So he, he funds schools, he creates schools, but he describes education as this undertaking that you really are doing with your friends outside of school, against school. And that, in a way, preserves individual liberty and the liberty of, of thought um, and develops the habits of sort of ability to uh, to withstand fashion, but without the need for parents to sort of lavish authority on you and lavish attention on you. So I think that's kind of been the American solution is to have this cultural attitude in which we don't take school seriously. And school teachers have pretty low social status in the United States compared to other countries where they have the same level of education. We have this like incredibly decentralized, inefficient education system that's locally controlled. And if we were sensible, we would just be like every other OECD country and centralize that. But we don't. And I think the reason that we're resistant to that kind of thing is precisely because we have this deep suspicion that school is a kind of indoctrinating force, because it is in a certain way. But we also have this, I think, understanding that we need it. We need it to be there and we need it to be good and we need to actually sort of give people basic education. And it is the most efficient mechanism through which we could do that. So school is a kind of medicine. Yeah, it's the it's like the poison, the sweetened poison on the cup. And yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so the, the idea is that we have a cultural tradition of hating school. And that that's actually fairly unique um, among developed countries in the 21st century. England is kind of close to us in this respect and for reasons that make a lot of sense uh, because they come from the same kind of uh, Anglophone philosophical liberal tradition. Uh, but not a lot of other countries are. And it's actually very hard to maintain this delicate balance in which we both want schools and we want them to be good and we need them. We need a, a system of functioning public schools. Uh, but at the same time, we remain very skeptical of it and of what we get from it. And we try to understand education as something that is really taking place outside of it. Well, I look forward to that book and talking to you on the New Books Network about it when it comes out. Um, I hope you will join me again um, to talk about your research. Uh, and today I've been joined by um, Rita Hogazone, um, who's the author of Liberal States, Authoritarian Families, Childhood and Education in Early American Thought, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. I assume this is available at the Oxford University Press website. Yep. And if you have any brick and mortar stores that you're particularly fond of that you want to tell people to go find your book at. Um, I'm not sure. The Seminary Co-op in Hyde Park, um, at, at least sent it to me. I don't know if they have it on, on their shelves, but it is available through there. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rita. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure.